0: As we get started, the first thing we like to do is give you just a few seconds for spiritual preparation. And I think everybody here has been in one of my classes and understands what that is. It's just a few seconds for you to personally either confess sins or relax a little bit and uh, prepare to study the Word of God. So you have a few seconds to close your eyes, bow your heads, and then I will open us in a few seconds in prayer. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for the wonderful promises that you have given us, and we're thankful for the lessons that we we are able to learn, that are there for us to learn from the Old Testament. Uh, The many who have gone before us who have demonstrated faith, and as we do, at times, demonstrated failure. But you have always been faithful. When we are faithless, you are faithful. When we fail, you are still faithful. And we're thankful for that. And we're thankful for the Word of God that we have the uh, have the opportunity to study. We're thankful for this um, this location, Morrison Bible College, Capitol Bible Seminary, the Equip Institute, and we're thankful for the students that you have sent us. We pray as we study the Book of Ruth this morning, particularly the background, that we will have uh, gain a better insight, so that we will have a firm foundation to look at the actual text of Scripture. We ask this in Jesus' name, Amen. Okay. Uh, Last week, we got started in the book of Ruth. Well, we didn't get started in the book of Ruth. We got started in the background of the book of Ruth. And uh, even though I I really do want to get into the text today, uh, one of the things that I try to do is give a a good solid background and a foundation for the book Uh, of any book that we're studying so that we have um, a better understanding and a better knowledge of where we're going and what we're doing. One of the things that I I wanted to mention also is that it has nothing nothing to do with the book of Ruth, but it has to do with the the length of the class. This class is designed to uh, go, I think, into the first week of May. So we have the time to study this rather large book, and it will seem large once we get done with it. But one of the things we're going to do besides just go through the, the, uh, the verses, which we are going to do, is we're going to look at several doctrines along the way. We're going to examine those particular doctrines that are uh, very pertinent to what we see in the individuals and in the, in the text. So we have uh, plenty of time and plenty of material here. Last week, we looked at the background of the book, and in looking at the background, we tried to establish a little bit of the, uh, the timing of the book, but we'll see that even more so <clears throat> today as we look at the author and when uh, we believe the book was written. But it is set very closely and aligned very closely with the book of Judges. Uh, it's not necessarily found there in the Hebrew text, but uh, we'll see a little bit more about that as well. We looked at background verses, we looked at Exodus 23, 20 through 26, so that we could have a little bit better understanding of God's promises to Israel. We also went through Leviticus 26, uh, 1 through 20, and now those background verses should be in your uh, uh, your handout. And the Leviticus text and also that in Deuteronomy uh, 7 and 28 talk about the blessings uh, and also the cursings that uh, Israel could expect if they were not faithful or if they were faithful. And so those are important texts to us. uh, Particularly uh, Deuteronomy um, 28 verse 23 that talks Reiterates the uh, uh, the judgment of uh, economic disaster, famine, if they were not faithful. We also, I, I don't know if we looked at Joshua twenty four fourteen, but that's Joshua talking to uh, uh, the people, the Lord actually talking to the people, and <clears throat> uh, talking to them about serving the Lord. Serving the Lord, and matter of fact, let's go to that that text in Joshua. It's Joshua twenty four, Joshua twenty four fourteen, and I say twenty four and following. But Joshua, at the end of his of the book that's named after him, Joshua twenty four, is addressing the people, and this is very similar to the uh, to Moses. Addressing Israel as he is uh, saying goodbye to them throughout Deuteronomy. And the book of Deuteronomy is avoided by many people, but you have but if we understand that the book is actually given in a very brief period of time because it's Moses talking to the children of Israel as they're lined up on the east side of the Jordan. And This is... uh, Somebody tried to eat that one. I think this is important for us to understand what we have. That may be a little bit large dead sea. But... Bring it down here a little bit more. Something like that. But Moses has, uh, has marched Israel up from the south... And they are encamped in a place called Shittim, which is on the east side of the Jordan. And Moses lines them up and he addresses them. And I often like to picture that as uh, almost like a coach. It's a football coach or a baseball coach who has failed once before. They got to the championship game. Only they were down here at Kadesh Barnea. At Kadesh Barnea, that's a K. And they were to enter the land there, but they did not enter the land. Because Israel lost faith in what God could do for them. And so, 38 years later, uh, the Lord brings them back to the east side of the Jordan. And now here's Moses. He's actually saying goodbye to them. But he's reiterating their history and the law to them. And before he tells them goodbye, he establishes for them all the things that God will do for them. Uh, and the very last thing he talks to them about is the blessings and the cursings in 28. Well, now, Joshua is almost doing the same thing. He saw his mentor... Moses do this, and although there are some who think that Deuteronomy may have been giving in just one uh, one speech, I think it probably could be uh, a little bit, could be more than that. But that gives you a sense that Moses is addressing the people and giving them really his last uh, effort in getting them into the land successfully. And now here's Joshua doing the same thing. And so he talks to them in Joshua 2414 as he's saying goodbye to them. they have uh, finished the campaigns, the central campaigns, the southern campaign, the northern campaign. they have uh, reduced the most uh, uh, the strongest, Uh, Nations, city-states in the land. They've divided up the land and they've begun to reduce the land to a certain extent in their own tribal areas. But he says to them in verse 14, Now therefore, fear the Lord, serve Him in sincerity and in truth, and put away the gods which your father served on the other side of the river. And he's talking about on the other side of the river which is the Euphrates. And in Egypt, serve the Lord. And it seems evil to you to serve the Lord. Choose for yourself this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served, that were on the other side of the river, Euphrates, or the gods of the Amorites, again, in the land, in whose land you now dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And of course, the people all say, we will serve the Lord. That's who we're going to serve. Well, when we get into Judges, and we saw this last time, that uh the first generation after Joshua is still faithful but the generations after that forget the lord and they begin to do what is right in everyone's heart and we saw those two passages in judges 176 and also judges 2125 in that there's no king and of course uh, we think that this is being written probably during the time of the early monarchy or the monarchy that's coming but in Judges, but there's no king in Israel, so every man did what was right in his own eyes. And that's, what we, that's where we are when we really get to uh, the book of Ruth as well. Now, last time uh, we covered the authorship, we had the background, we covered the authorship, and I think we worked our way down to the title, is that correct? We made the, those great strides. So this morning we're going to continue... And we're going to uh, talk about the title of the book. We'll talk about the place in the canon. We'll try to talk a little bit about the uh, authorship as well. And we'll look at the the date and historical setting. So, uh, authorship we covered. Okay, title. Now, the book of Ruth... On page two, partway down, about a little more than partway, I guess, the book of Ruth derives its name from one of the three main characters, and that's not a surprise to anybody because if we've read the book, and by the way, that was your homework. Hopefully, you all had a chance to read the book of Ruth, and if you haven't, um, I'm very disappointed. Yeah. But if you've read the book of Ruth, you've got an idea of who who are there, and there's a list of a short list of characters. Uh, Ruth, Boaz, of course, and Naomi. But as we say here, uh, it's named after one of the three main characters, the Moabite daughter-in-law of Naomi and eventual wife of Boaz. And uh, we're going to look at this a little bit in depth. The traditional derivation of the name from the Hebrew word Is often thought to be friendship. Matter of fact, that's pretty much uh, what is established. But if we study that word and try to determine uh, its source, uh, we find out that, first of all, it's not, of course, it's not a Hebrew word. Uh, It comes from the nation of Moab, and it's really not an Aramaic word either. So, coming from one of the uh, strands of of, uh, Arabic, we're simply not sure what it means. Uh, the accurate etymology of the name simply remains a mystery to us. And that's fine, because we'll find out a lot about Ruth herself, and she establishes a, uh, a true meaning for her own name. Uh, the mystery of the name also delivers the fascination of Ruth and what God does in her life. From nothing, the unknown, comes the grace of God and His glory, and his glory is again revealed. So what, what's really wonderful about Ruth's name is while we know little or nothing about the name and, uh, and why the, the name may have been given to her, we are going to see that she uh, develops a wonderful uh, sense for her own name. Uh, secondly there, or B, Ruth is named 12 times in the book. But else in the Bible, she's only found in Matthew's genealogy, Of Jesus in Matthew 1 through 5. Let's go see that one other time. Let's go to Matthew 1. Back to the New Testament, Matthew 1. And this genealogy in itself is uh, truly uh, exciting, I guess we could say. But Matthew is a tax collector. And he is sort of a. Many of the writers were, but although some of them weren't. He really is a, uh, he focuses on paperwork and getting the details right. And so he nails these records down pretty closely. And we see as we begin uh, verse 1 here, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. So we start with his royalty. We understand the royalty here. The son of Abraham. The next thing we get is his heritage. that He comes from Abraham. And now we see that he continues with Abraham. He doesn't go back and start with Adam. Please, come right in. We have a handout over here as you go by. That's it. So we're going to see that Matthew starts with Abraham and Luke ends with uh, Adam. So... They run the uh, the genealogies uh, differently here. Abraham begot Isaac, Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot Judah. And his brothers, Jake, Judah and his brothers. Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And so here's the first woman that we see mentioned in the genealogy. And what is... Uh, what the author and God the Holy Spirit demonstrates as he mentions the women here. I think he mentions them in particular because all of them have a reputation. All of them have something that we would consider to be a stigma to their name. Uh, Tamar is really the daughter-in-law of Judah. He's the daughter, she's the daughter-in-law of Judah. Her husband died. And she has to uh, scheme in order to return, into to get back into the family and actually have children. And she does it by way of her father-in-law, Judah. Perez begot Harzon, and Herzon begot Ram. Ram begot Abinadab. Abinadab begot Nashon. Nashon begot Salmon. Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab. And so here we see our second uh, woman mentioned in the genealogy. And Rahab comes first, right out of the book of, of Joshua and she's not uh, she's not Jewish and we'll find out that she's got a reputation as well because wherever she's mentioned except here she's almost always referred to as Rahab the prostitute so after believing she had a little bit of uh, spiritual development to achieve then Boaz begot Obed by Ruth and Ruth of course is a Moabitess and Ruth plays very prominently so the, the uh, sort of the principle that we might p- uh, pull from this is that uh, you don't have to be from the, the royal line you don't have to be somebody special if God has a plan for your life you will end up being uh, a very vital part of God's plan and you know, what we might think is a vital part of God's plan might be that well we'll be famous or we'll be rich or we'll be prominent or we'll be great leaders but that's not true here are three women who are mentioned in the bible for all eternity they are here for us to read and how did they start and uh and at their at the time how would they have thought of themselves they would have not thought of themselves as being particularly prominent maybe not prominent at all as a matter of fact they would have probably put themselves on the lowest rung of the ladder of human race but as far as God the Holy Spirit is concerned, He records their name for us in, gene- in the genealogy of the most important human in all of history, and that would be the Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> and so that's Ruth. Ruth is seen in Matthew one five. Uh, thirdly, or C, the name of the book, uh, the name of the book after Ruth is truly remarkable for several reasons. And first of all, Ruth's not an Israelite. She was a Moabitess, and that is a fact as we read through it, and it's interesting as you read through the book of Ruth, that it's co- we're constantly reminded that she's a Moabitess. We are not allowed to forget the fact that she's not Jewish, and that she has come not only from <clears throat> a nation outside of Israel, but the Moabites are just about as objectionable as you can get if you're uh, Jewish. So she's a Moabitess. Again, a fact that the writer and Boaz reminds us at least five times. This is the only book uh, in the Old Testament canon named after a non-Israelite. The Moabites spring from the bizarre incident after the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 19, 30-38. And it's a, an interesting read to go over into Genesis uh, 19, and we might do that next week when we get into the actual text. But... <clears throat> that well no let's go now we don't want to wait everybody's anxious to go over and look at Genesis 19 so let's go to Genesis 19 and this is right after one of the great uh, cataclysmic events in all of history and it would have been great if we could have been there to watch but we wouldn't have wanted to watch the only person who did watch uh, didn't survive so so We're in Genesis 19.30, and what's happening here is that the Lord has just gone through uh, Abraham's wish list here. And Abraham, of course, was trying to save uh, Lot and his family, and he was also probably, uh, in a roundabout way, uh, he was actually, those are the people he was trying to save, but he, in a roundabout, he was doing it in a roundabout way by trying to save Sodom and Gomorrah. And he talks to the Lord, he tries to talk him down from just destroying uh, Sodom and Gomorrah outright to, well, what if there are? And so this is one of those interesting situations where we can see that. The Lord doesn't just indiscriminately destroy nations and cities if there are believers there. And so Abraham just kind of works the Lord down. He says, well, if we've got 50 there, okay, I'll, I'll spare if there's 50. What about 45? Sure, 45. Do I hear 40? 40, 40, 35, 30, 30, 30. You know I mean? And he works his, his way down until he gets to what he thinks absolutely are believers. They, these people, the family of Lot, have got to be believers. And so the Lord says, sure, I'll spare them if there's, a, if there, if they, if there's that many believers well the lord knows all along there's not that many believers there he knows exactly how many believers there are and he knows who's going to survive so he gets down and he brings out this, the those who are believers and those who are going to survive but what we end up with when we get to verse 30 is that we only have lot and his two daughters and at this point it's probably a very dark time for them. And we we have to put ourselves, and it's always hard to do this, to put ourselves in their position to see the world and their situation uh, as they did. But here we have Lot and his two daughters, and they're now living in caves. Well, they've come from one of the most prosperous cities in the ancient world. Um had just about everything they could they could possibly want, and now they're up in a cave, and they have no idea who else has survived. They probably think that maybe that the world, that, you know, the entire world, as far as they're concerned, has just been destroyed. Uh, certainly, all their friends, any of the guys they would have known, are no longer around to uh, uh, to date. So. Verse 30, Then Lot went up out of Zoar and dwelt in the mountains, and his two daughters were with him, for he was afraid to dwell in Zoar. And he and his, uh, his two daughters dwelt in the cave. Now the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is no man on earth to come in to us as is the custom of all the earth, so here 's a very good euphemism. From Now on, you can say you know if something happens or you read it in a newspaper well it's uh, something happened there that as the, is the custom of all the earth, and uh, you will know exactly what you 're talking about, and nobody else will, of course, but oh uh, maybe they will, but anyhow. So, there was no opportunity for them to get pregnant and have children. That's what she's referring to. And you can see that this firstborn obviously thinks the world has really come to an end. So, verse 32 says, Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him. And there's a lot that could be said about this. Uh, uh, But... Anyhow, we'll just press on, that we may preserve the lineage of our father. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father, and she did not know when she lay. He did not know when she lay down, nor when she arose. So he's really pretty drunk. Um, Thirty-four, which, by the way, is a sin. I mean, there's no doubt about it. Because not only is it sinful to be drunk, but it's sinful for what is occurring here. This is all conceived in sin. 34. It happened on the next day that the firstborn said to the younger, okay, now it's your turn. Indeed, I lay with my father last night. Let's make him drink wine again also tonight, and you go in and lie with him that we may preserve the lineage of our father. And again, you can see that, uh, that they, they really perceive this as a very desperate situation. Verse 35. Then they made their father drink wine that night also, and the younger arose and lay with him. And he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Verse 36. Thus both the daughters of Lot were with child by their father, so they both became pregnant. 37. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. And Moab uh, is the Hebrew word meaning from father of is where we get the name Abraham uh, you know the father uh, the father of all uh, the high father starts out as high father but of means father and we get the word mo it's a uh, combination means from father so it was an incestuous relationship but who in the world would just go ahead and name the son from father I mean this is just a little bit strange uh, he is the father of the Moabites to this day. Verse 38. And the younger, she also bore a son and called his name Ben-Amim. And the name Ben here is, is a traditional name for son, son of. So when we hear uh, someone name, has the first, their, their last name starts with Ben. Uh, ben, ben Laden means son of Laden. Well, what we have here is son of Amim. And Amin is, going, is the Hebrew word for people. So he is the son of my people. So that's another interesting name, Ben-Amin. He is the father of the people of Ammon to this day. So this is how we got the family uh, of Moab started. Genesis 19, 30 through through 38 there. And what we'll learn is that this stays with them. Uh, The... Uh, Israelites and the Arabs, they're not people that forget things very quickly. So this sort of stays with, uh, the reputation stays with Moab. It's hard to outlive these things. So, uh, uh, secondly here in C, on page 3, from a literary standpoint, Ruth is not the main character of the book. Even though uh, the book is named uh, for Ruth, she's not the main character of the book. D. The story opens by describing the crisis in Naomi's family, highlighting her own emptiness, and concludes with the resolution of the crisis on the declaration of her uh, her fullness in birth of Obed. So, in the conclusion, in chapter 4, the writer all but ignores Ruth, and based on the plot, the story could have just as easily been named after Naomi. And... It really starts with Naomi and it ends with Naomi. And through the book, she plays a prominent role. But she's not really the most prominent, even though uh, she certainly is one of those three. Uh, E, the importance of dialogue is significant in this book. More than 52% of the narrative is direct speech or what we would call discourse. That's kind of how we describe it. When we're looking at the Bible, we would say it's direct discourse. Of the three main actors in the drama, however, Ruth speaks the least often. And her remarks are even the shortest. So, she participates really the least amount if we call this a play. She's in the play, and she has the smallest part of the script. Okay. Ruth speaks a total of 120 words in 10 dialogues. Naomi speaks 225 words, so you can see that she speaks well over 100 more words in 12 discourses. However, Boaz, who gets lost in the dust of battle most of the time in the teaching of this book, as a matter of fact, he's even sometimes represented as a dirty old man, uh, but Boaz speaks 281 words in 14 exchanges. So based on dialogue, the book could have been named after Boaz. But who'd be anxious to read the book if it was called Boaz? you know? Ruth is a little bit more attractive. F. <clears throat> Ruth could be seen as the link between the other characters. but Naomi also is a vital link uh, about which the entire story revolves around which this entire story revolves. G, no doubt the title of Ruth reflects the writer's and the reader's fascination with and the special adf- admiration for the character of Ruth. And H, the English title of Ruth comes from the septuagint version of the book. Now, uh, that comes as a surprise to some people to say, now wait a minute, doesn't the name Ruth come, isn't that the title of the uh, the book? Well, we see it in English and we naturally assume that it is therefore the Hebrew title for the book. But the Hebrew didn't give books of the Bible titles. So when we get to the book of Genesis, we don't have Genesis. All right, the, you know Moses says, I think I'll write a book here. I'll call it Genesis. Well, he doesn't call it Genesis. He starts writing the book. And the first words he writes are Bereshith, in the beginning. So if I'm Hebrew and I want to tell you which book we're going to be studying, I'd say we're going to go to Bereshith. We're going to go to the first book of the Bible. And they would always take the phrases from the first part of the first sentence and name the book that way. I mean, they didn't name, need to name the books because uh, most of the Hebrews had studied the books. You know, if they were, grew up in a home, they remember going over the books and over the books and over the books. But when in approximately 280 B.C., the translation from Hebrew into the Greek Langry was made, and we call it the Septuagint because we believe that there were approximately 70 uh, translators who really, and the first thing that they did is they translated the Pentateuch. Uh, then they translated the rest of the Bible thereafter, but the Pentateuch was the main thing. But we think that there were 70 translators who tried to translate the Pentateuch and uh, translated it into Greek in 70 days. And so they just it just kind of stuck. The Septuagint. But they gave the books of the Bible titles. And so the books of the Bible that we see either are Greek words or at least have something to do with the Bible that they thought was more appropriate, or was appropriate. And so the English title of Ruth comes from the Septuagint version of the book. Version of the book. We don't have a Hebrew title for this book. The Hebrews did not give formal titles to the book, but identified each work from the first line of the original text. So, this would possibly be, they would probably understand this, as the time when the judges judged, or they ruled, or they governed. So, you know, Sad to say that we don't have this title uh, from time immemorial, but at least at least from 280 B.C. Okay, the place in the canon, but Ruth is fine. I didn't do that to crush anyone's you know wonderful thoughts about the the name Ruth uh, because it's fine. It works fine for us. Uh, so fourth, the place in the canon. Even though the author is unknown, and we talked about that before, we have no clue. There's no clue in the book as to who wrote this. Even though the author is unknown, the the canonical placement of the book of Ruth seems to have been recognized from the beginning. Uh, There doesn't appear to be, in any of the things that we can study, controversy over the book of Ruth. And there could be several reasons for that, but we only have a very slight indication that Ruth's inclusion in the canon and inspiration was challenged. And this might be explained by the early belief that Samuel or possibly Nathan were the authors, and that would have possibly helped to bring it into the canon. The other part is that it may have been a a text by itself, but if it was, excuse me, it may have been joined with judges. But if it was, it was split off so early that we really don't know that it was uh, absolutely attached to Judges. B, the placement of the book of Ruth after Judges in our English Bibles follows the arrangement, again, of this strange word, Septuagint, seven, often represented as the LXX, because that's the Roman numeral, LXX. And uh, one of my professors in seminary said, if you're pronouncing it, it's Septuagint. If you're writing it, it's LXX. So he said, and every now and then someone would say, well, isn't that how it's found in the LXX? He, it's not the LXX, it's a septuagint. The name for the n- number is septuagint. It's not LXX. He said, nobody would ever understand what LXX means if you were walking around some room and They'd say, what are you talking about? It's a septuagint. Pronounce it. Pronounce the, na- the number. Anyhow. <clears throat> so the, uh, it follows the arrangement of the septuagint. Greek translation of the Hebrew text. And this alignment suggests Ruth was originally attached to Judges. And so that's uh, an inference we have. Uh, See here, Ruth's association with Judges offers the reader welcome relief from the decay and the failure of the time of the Judges. And that's very true. As we read through the book of Judges, we can get so depressed that we might close the Bible. But when we get to Ruth, we find something completely different. Whereas Judges had developed the theme of Israel's Increasing spiritual decline and infidelity. This book highlights the presence and the nature of genuine spirituality during the same period, and so uh, there, th- there's that theme that comes with the book of Ruth. In contrast to the Canaanized or the flawed characters like Gideon, and if you, you know, we only know generally the, that Gideon. Uh, The wonderful things he does is he uh, leads the attack of uh, 300 uh, uh, warriors. But there's a lot of things in his background that are, uh, well, looks a little bit like our background. Let's just face it. So he's not the perfect guy that we might think. Jephthah and Samson are the same. All the personalities in Ruth display authentic faith and true covenant faithfulness. And we'll see this word... which can be translated many different ways. It can be translated covenant faithfulness. It's often translated just love, which I think is a little bit of a misnomer. Uh, Through the Psalms, it's translated mercy. It's often referred to as Loyalty. So we'll see, kind. kindness is another translation. So we'll see different ways of of translating this. But displays faith and true covenant faithfulness. The book of Ruth demonstrates that the lights of God's grace and human integrity still shone in some small communities in Israel with Bethlehem our example in Ruth. And that's what we'll see, that Bethlehem is our example. D, on the other hand, the vast majority of Hebrew manuscripts place Ruth with the Song of Songs. It's called... uh, uh, song of Songs, we call it the Song of Solomon's uh, song. Yeah, the uh, Song of Songs here, uh, Lamentations, Ecclesiastes, and Esther. A part of the group known as the Writings or the Ketuvim. Uh, and the reason it's actually placed with that group is because Ruth became a very special book to the Hebrew festivals. E, the book of Ruth was one of the five books traditionally read at annual Jewish festivals. Ruth was read at the Feast of Weeks, or we would call it Passover, uh, 50 days after Passover, and it commemorated the first fruits of the harvest. And we see this in Exodus 23.16. Ruth's betrothal took place during this festive harvest season, when barley was being winnowed. And we see that in Ruth 1.22 and and 3.2. So... Uh, the Jews took the book and said because it occurs during this time let's read it during this festive season during the Feast of Weeks or as we call it, Pentecost. Uh, F, the book and in the, in, the, the writings Cthuvim, articulate wisdom either in a formal way as the artistic products of wisdom or the truth of what is taught. And so... It's found in the Cthuvim because of the, it's often thought of as wisdom literature. And Ruth is found in the writings because of, first of all, the literary form and the skill of the writer. It really is a very well-written book. And in Hebrew, as you translate, it's one of the first books that we translated in Hebrew uh, at Capital Bible Seminary. And it was a real joy to translate because it translates easy. It reads well. Um, it has uh, a, uh, The narrative is very vivid. And so the book is a wonderful book to translate. And so he, the author was very skilled. But secondly, because this short story informs us, informs us of how we can live wisely in the midst of undeserved suffering by applying biblical doctrines or biblical truth to suffering in our own lives. And that's one of the themes that often is very much overlooked. In this way, we see suffering turn to blessing when we go through those times of trial and heartache. We see from the example of Naomi and Ruth how God can take suffering and turn it to blessing. And that is probably the main theme of this book, even though, it's, again, it's very often overlooked. Because we start, and as quick as we can get into Naomi's life, we see the heartbreaking suffering that she goes through. G. The place of the book of Ruth following Judges in our English Bible works the best for us because it maintains historical unity with Judges and contributes additional positive insight into the Jewish life at that time. So even though uh, my Hebrew text has it in a completely different place, frankly it has other books in completely different places as well. So the placement of it where it is behind Judges is fine for us. Uh, we talked about the writer. Now let's look at the date and historical setting. And this, um, I'm again, I'm doing this because I think it helps us get a little bit better feel for the understanding of the book overall. Uh, first of all, the date of the writing of the book of Ruth is also troublesome. Not only it's kind of like the, talking about the book of Hebrews, you know, uh, in the New Testament. We don't know who wrote it. We don't know. To whom he was really writing, we just know it was, a, we think, it was a, a group of, of Jewish believers, but we don't know that because the name of the book isn't inspired. Uh, we don't know exactly where the author was when he wrote it, and we're not sure t- where the Hebrews were when they received it, and we're not really sure of the date. So... Once you've covered all that, you say, now that we've covered that, you don't know anything, so we'll now move on. But the date of the writing of the book of Ruth is also troublesome. We don't know who it was, and we don't know the date. And again, we we think we we know it was written right there in in Israel. But without certain knowledge of the author, the specific year or the decade is very elusive for us. Liberal scholars of the past century tend to date the book after the Jews returned from the exile. So they really date it late. Um... the tradition, and we we'll might as well just continue here, but the tradition is that, it, that Samuel very likely wrote the book. But uh, scholars, as they look at that, conservative scholars, think that Samuel possibly did not write the book. And Again, we sometimes think that maybe Nathan did. But again, uh, some of the, I think some of the best scholars think, well, it may have drifted beyond Nathan's time as well. But you know, current liberal scholars who like to destroy everything say, well... It couldn't have been written uh, during that period of time. We have to late date it. So they like to push it all the way back past the uh, exile. And the exile generally was 536. In other words, returning the returns are from 536 to four 440- forty. 4bc however the argument in support of this position are very weak and just unconvincing Uh, and i've given you just some dates here so you can see when we talk about the exile and we do believe the book was written prior to the exile the northern kingdom goes out in 722 bc the southern kingdom goes out from over a spread of dates from about 600 to 586 bc and then post-exilic our returns under first of all Zerubbabel is in five thirty six B C. We see Ezra coming back in four fifty eight, and then we see Nehemiah back in four forty four. And there's a different importance for each one of those uh, those individuals in those dates. B characteristics of the Hebrew language in the book seem to be from the time prior to the exile. And so, well, the only thing we really have to go on is now the language. And so, we do a very detailed study of the language and the way the language is used. <clears throat> Some date the book within a few generations of the events described in the book, and probably during David's lifetime, and that would be about about circa 1000 B.C., Uh, And this is probably because the genealogy at the end of Ruth ends with David. Uh, It's a wonderful thing because uh, one of the themes of the book, and we believe that uh, it could could have been maybe one of the author's central themes, was that he's trying to establish the true royal lineage here of David. Because when David's born, everybody at that time would probably have an idea of his lineage. And they would say the king is going to have a Moabitess in his background? Come on, how can this be true? Well, so we have this story that talks about the lineage of David. But anyhow, other writers date the book during Solomon's reign, which would be about 950, or even as late as Manassas in 680. And the reason they would push it back to 680 is because, again, they're going through some dark periods and they write the book from the sense that you know this is cyclical for us and look here we do have a very uh, bright period of our time whichever date is selected it must be early enough to accommodate the author's familiarity with the period of the judges in other words the days when the judge is governed or the day when the judge is judged it's the, the same it's the uh, cognates there the noun and the verb. It must also be late enough to support the writer's requirement to explain the custom of the ceremony of the sandal. And that's one of the intriguing parts about the book, is that the author uh, determines that he needs to put a parenthetical statement to explain one of the rituals. He talks about the ritual, the ceremony, and then he says, oh, by the way, in case you didn't know, he explains it. So it's written late enough that he thought he had had to describe that. Uh, though the date of composition is uncertain, the story of Ruth itself takes place in the latter part of the periods of the judges. So that's the period in which this occurs. Again, somewhere in the vicinity probably of uh, 1100 B.C. and covers a time span of about 12 years. This period of Israel's history was generally a desert of rebellion and immorality, a period of extreme spiritual and moral decay. But the story of Ruth stands in contrast as an oasis of integrity and righteousness. And so those are that's maybe a little more background than uh, some might uh, provide for a study of the Book of Ruth. but I think it's again important. Background is always important. Then our map. Here's a map to get us oriented, and hopefully it came out well uh, on your copy. It shows us, first of all, we would start over in the country of Moab, and it's on the right side, the east side of the Salt Sea, later known as the Dead Sea. So we're in Moab, and we see that this is where the family, uh, this is where Act 1, when the curtains lift, we're in Moab. And we find the family there, and we see that the three wives outlived their husbands, and that's uh, one, chapter 1, 3 through 5. We also see that they are going to travel uh, probably north over the Dead Sea and into Bethlehem. It just simply makes sense that that's the way they would go, although we are not told. And then Naomi and Ruth resettle over in and around Bethlehem. So this is our map. We're probably not going to need the map that much as we go through our text, but at least it gets you where uh, in position as it orients us. On our next page, page six, I've included for you some of what people would call the mega-themes. And I did not write this up. I pulled this out of a uh, a text, and I'm surprised I didn't put it in here for you. Um, Might bring it next time. But these are some of the themes that people often use to explain uh, some of the... Uh, the underlying, the sub-themes that are going on or for them maybe some of the dominant things that are occurring. And I don't plan to read through these. But you can see that first of all we have faith, faithfulness. That there is a sense of faithfulness here in the book. And it's teaching that. Certainly Ruth's faithfulness uh, to Naomi. Uh, we'll see uh, Boaz's faithfulness. But of course what it's really teaching is God's faithfulness. Kindness. And again, we'll see the kindness that Ruth shows to Naomi. We'll also see, of course, Naomi's kindness uh, in return to Ruth as she takes care of her. We see Boaz's kindness towards Ruth and Naomi. But we also see, uh, and by the way, the word kindness usually translated in our English text here is that word, Hebrew word, chesed. the Hebrew word, and it's chesed. Uh, And it means, as I said, it can mean, it's translated kindness, mercy, uh, loyalty, faithfulness, uh, covenant faithfulness, and some people uh, translate it love, but I, I think that's a misnomer. But anyhow, this word is used several times, and it's used... At times, we might not expect it to be used, and we will have to determine the meaning, the the contextual meaning, because that's how we determine uh, the definition of words. We have to go to the context. You know, some people think that uh, you know dictionaries came first. No, you know, writing comes first, and then as we as we read what we uh, what has been written, we then write dictionaries. Integrity. Uh, oh, let me finish with kindness. Well, the, the, the real kindness, of course, is shown by God. God's uh, faithfulness, His uh, covenant faithfulness, His loyalty, and His mercy. Integrity. Again, Ruth shows high moral character by being loyal to Naomi. Uh, but we also see there's a lot of character displayed here by Naomi and Boaz. And, of course, then it's the integrity of God th- shown throughout. Protection. We see God's care and protection, and we see that uh, he, His provisions throughout, and then prosperity and blessing. And I think uh, that that is probably one of the more dominant themes, uh, particularly as I said, uh, that blessing, how blessing comes out of suffering. Uh, I didn't want to go through those in any great depth, so you might want to read those later on, but I, I did actually go through it in more depth than I thought I would. Uh, eight on page seven. Uh, Roman numeral 8, the distinguished descendants. And this shows you the line that will be revealed to us in the last chapter. And that's why I think the last chapter is, is, uh, has to tell us or has to imply a lot of why the book was written. Because it ends with this uh, uh, very significant naming of David. And we would read the other names, and we wouldn't, we wouldn't bat an eye. But uh, the, the name David is used twice, and once is the la- it's the last word in the Hebrew text in Ruth. It's David. Now it is mentioned a little uh, in the, par- the end of the previous paragraph, but I think that the name David is uh, the significance of this book is surrounds that name, and that's another thing that this writer does so well is he writes the entire book, gives this story, and then right at the end, he hammers you with uh, this impactful ending. And it's a, it's a wonderful ending. And again, for us, we would see David and say, oh yes, King David. But for any Jews reading this, this was significant to see David. David? I mean, for them, it's uh, their hero. He's the, uh, the greatest king a human king that they're going to have until the Lord Jesus Christ returns. Outline of the book. I've given you, uh, well, let me the family tree here of Ruth, you can see, beginning with, uh, coming down the one side, we have Abraham, Judah, Perez, to get to Boaz. And then, of course, on the other side, we have Lot, uh, son, Moab, you know, my father, and then Ruth and so we get down to Boaz and Ruth marrying and then we have Obed, Jesse, and David. Daweed, as the Hebrew would say. The outline of the book. What I've done is given you three different authors' approach to this book. and uh, The Nelson Study Bible, I like the Nelson Study Bible. I've taken it out of my New American Standard uh, Nelson Study Bible. So you can see how They handle this. And it talks about the sojourn in the land of Moab, the tragedy in Moab, friendship and and faith in Moab. So it gives you the sense of those topics. When you get over to the Expositor's Bible Commentary number two, it does the same thing, but it it names, gives individual uh, names, and it almost gives you more of a topical narrative as you go. So that um, you know, it's an Israelite family's sojourn in Moab. I mean, it almost descri- it, I mean, it very accurately describes what we have there. Talks about the famine in Judah. Talks about the deaths of Naomi's children and uh, husband and children. So it doesn't say, you know, well, there's disaster here, and that's what a lot of times it'll you'll see in a uh, an outline. Uh, depression or suffering or something like that. So I kind of, the, the Expositor's Bible Commentary outline really gives us uh, a very vivid picture of what's happening. And then I also added in the last outline, which is comes from the New American Commentary, and it, they entitle it The Preservation of Israel's Royal Line. And they go through it, and I'm going to uh, allude to this as we go because I think it... Uh, uh, helps us to enjoy the book even more if you think of it as possibly being uh, acted out as well. You know, we have Act One, Act Two, Act Three, Act Four, and then sort of the epilogue. And so, I I, I kind of like that approach. And so, I'll allude to that periodically. And you'll also see that it does emphasize the uh, the royal line. Okay, that gets us. Through our introduction, let's go to the text and in the last few minutes that we have, let's begin to study the book of Ruth. Let's take a look here at the book of Ruth. Let me read through at least the first five verses i think when i taught this uh once before uh and i and i like to read uh the scripture and read the uh read our text uh i actually started in verse one and read all the way to uh the last verse of chapter four uh because it's important to actually read the text and really read it as a whole it's a provides more more impact, it's more significant. But let's at least read up through the first five verses. And we see, first of all, again, possibly the title for our book. Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled, or when the judges judged, and we'll talk a little bit about that, that there was a famine in the land. So we have, we're we're again talking about uh, the land of Israel. We have to understand that. We're beginning in the land of Israel, and very quickly we move out of Israel. And a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to dwell in the country of Moab, he and his wife, and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech. The name of his wife was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malchon, that's a hard H in Hebrew, and Chilion, Ephraimites of Bethlehem, Judah. Notice that the author, in his own way, draws attention to the names. He doesn't just say, uh, Limelech, Naomi, uh, and their two sons. But he says, And the name of the man was the name of the wife and the name of his son so we'll see the significance here in a second of these sons and or the of the meaning of these names and they do have particular name uh, particular meanings and they went to the country of moab and remained there and of course as we read this we just very quickly sweep through here we say okay starts in israel there's uh some economic uh difficulty there so they you know Naturally, they would naturally move to some place where they can uh, he can provide for his family. So this all seems pretty natural. Verse three. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. Boom. First uh, indication that there might be something amiss here. We may not uh, linger on it very long, but we would say, "Wow, this is a very strange way to begin this book." I mean, we're hardly even to verse three, and we've got. The one, what we would consider possibly one of the main characters. I mean, If we were reading this book, just to start out, we'd say Elimelech. Here's the father. The father of the family, uh, particularly in a Jewish family, is uh, you know, that's the dominant place. He is the father, and uh, he's the most important part of the family. Dead. Verse 3. Gone. So he dies. And she was left. And we'll see that the word was left here. Has a, uh, a it's a significantly written uh, verb. It's in the Nithel. It she it means she's you know it's like being abandoned, and she was left. Uh, she and her two sons. Now they took wives of the women of Moab. Again, might not think this is all that significant. We'll see that it is. Now they took wives of the women of Moab. The name of the one was Orpa, actually Arpa, uh, in the Hebrew, and the name of the other Ruth. And so again, we're we're looking at these names. And they dwelt there about ten years. Then both Malon and Chilion also died. So the woman survived her two sons and her husband. So we are hardly into the story. And, of course, the writer is setting the stage for what comes next. But we see that we're starting here with a great deal of suffering. Uh, Naomi who will be uh, one of the main characters of the book, has now been the uh, object of, first of all, she loses her her husband. And we talked a little bit about this last time. When you lose someone that you love, and we will stipulate here that this was a love relationship, when you lose somebody that you love, or even it's very close, uh, it leaves a void. And we naturally, uh, humanly, look to someone else. Uh, to sort of fill those voids. And it would only be natural for her to look to her two sons and th- their families. Well, then her two sons die. And it's, I, I think it's difficult for, for us to put ourselves in this situation, even though some of us have probably lost loved ones uh, or had voids to fill. But here she is. She's in a foreign country. Her family, and the Jewish families are very close-knit, are all back in Israel around Bethlehem, and her husband dies. Well, there is the breadwinner. Well, as long as the two sons are there, we still can rely on them, and that's exactly how the Jewish family would have responded. But then the two sons die. This is a tragedy beyond tragedies as far as Naomi could uh, would consider it. And so let's look at... Uh, let's work our way into these, these two verses. And I've got just a few minutes left here. But in chapter 1, we see the background or the opening situation of the book of Ruth finds the nation of Israel. And this is what we have to understand. And this is why we did the background work in Exodus. Uh, I don't know if we were into numbers, but in uh, Deuteronomy, in Leviticus, and also in Joshua and Judges. But we find that the nation of Israel is undergoing judgment. The nation of Israel is being judged, and the people involved, specifically this family, beginning the book of, uh, beginning this book, the book of Ruth, are a microcosm, or they are a representation of the carnality and the apostasy in the entire nation. So, what we see. And it's very easy for us to understand this. And this is how the Bible likes to present situations, is that they give us families or individuals, and that is a representation of the nation. And so, what we have is a famine. And had we just finished reading Judges, and many people who would be reading Ruth would have just finished that, they would have read the book of Judges, and they would have seen the cyclical nature of the the Israeli nation, that they are... When they are uh, faithful, they trust in the Lord and have faith in God, they're being blessed. But they are often very quickly faithless. And it swings just the other way. And they are then disciplined. And it just keeps going down and up and down and up. And the Lord uh, disciplines them to bring them back. And when they cry out to the Lord, He sends, as we would call them in English, judges. But they're probably better known as deliverers. And the deliverer you know, delivers them and brings them back, brings them back from uh, whatever uh, discipline they're under, whether it happens to be uh, economic, an economic discipline or if it's a discipline at the hands of a foreign nation. The nation and this family are faced with economic problems. There's a famine in the land, and the land again in Israel. The famine does not simply come about by chance. In other words, what we can't say here is that, well, this was just a uh, a meteorological uh, anomaly. You know, just somehow it happened. This is not global warming. So we don't we don't look at it that way. We can't say, well, what must Israel do? They may maybe they need to stop burning the uh, uh, chaff or. Maybe uh, they need to stop burning their candles as late at night or something because it's, there's a problem here of global warming. The famine has to do with God's judgment on the nation. And the book of Ruth is a story told in the shadow of the book of Judges in which God illustrates the principle of cursing turn to blessing. So, we've started the book. We're just a few seconds, I think, here uh, beyond. But uh, next time when we come back, we'll look at in a little bit more detail these first five verses and we'll talk specifically about the individuals in those verses and the situation that we find in Israel and Moab. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we're thankful for... um, the Word of God. And we're thankful that God the Holy Spirit has provided it for us, inspired it, and preserved it for us to to study. We pray as we study this book that we would not simply see it as a story, as as a nice story, a heartwarming story, but see the individuals and the situation that God the Holy Spirit, through this author, was trying to present. See the uh, difficulties they go through, but how uh, your faithfulness Uh, whether it's in prosperity or in austerity in uh, suffering, is great. And it's greater than all the suffering we could go through. Thankful for those who are here who are interested in studying the book of Ruth, and we look forward to uh, the next classes. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.